All Saints Day. Do you know what happened in 1519 on October the 31st? Martin Luther nailed the 95 objections he had to the practices of the Catholic Church on the door at the church in Wittenberg, Germany on that day because the next day is also, and I get them mixed up here, so the next day on November the 1st is a high visible day and thousands of people came and on that day the Reformation began. And that's why you're here. <laughs> right? That's this week. I, I, I want you to celebrate that. Think, I was going to teach on it. A lot of churches this Sunday will be uh, doing a series of messages on uh, the just shall live by faith uh, from Romans 1, 17, uh, 16, 17. Uh, Becky wouldn't let me do that. She said uh, I had to do something else. So, uh, but anyway, y'all just celebrate that. Don't celebrate Halloween. Celebrate Reformation Day. Celebrate the, 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 the renewing that God brought to the church of Jesus Christ through Martin Luther and many others on those days. And then uh, you can bring candy by my house on Friday. <clears throat> like to do that? Great, great. Well, thank, I want to thank Terry Fakes for filling in last week, and I was uh, glad to have some time off on fall break, and I'm glad to be back. I'm ready to go. We're talking about these conversations with Jesus. If you want to turn your Bible to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. We're going to look at a conversation here and work through it. And it's very famous. Uh, many of you probably don't even have to hardly turn to it. It's the conversation uh, that Jesus had with some religious leaders and a woman who had been caught in adultery. In fact, the Scriptures say the very act of adultery. And so we're going to look at that. It's John chapter 8. This is on the end of what we uh, talked about two weeks ago, that Jesus is in Jerusalem celebrating the festival of the tabernacles, a big uh, feast uh, pr participated in by, by thousands of people. And then on verse 1 it says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, that's to the east there of Jerusalem, by the east gate, uh, where there's lots of uh, things that are on the Mount of Olives. When we were in Israel, they told us that, no kidding, Now we, were, we, we went to the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane there when we were in Israel, they said some of these trees they have through botany and, and other people, I guess time dated them, whatever, that some of those olive trees can live to be 5,000 years old. And so some of those olive trees were there when Jesus was there. That was a pretty remarkable moment to be walking through that and picking olive. No, we didn't pick any olive. <laughs> no. <clears throat> I picked up a couple things, but anyway. Yeah, a cold actually. Uh, but... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, so Jesus goes to that side of the mount there on the other side of Jerusalem. And uh, this begins. And so early in the morning, he came again to the temple. And all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the center of the court. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be marvelous? You know, They said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up. And he said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And he again stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone, and the woman, where she was in the center of the courtyard. You get to picture this. In the center of the courtyard area there, in the temple area. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, 
where are they? Wouldn't that be a marvelous thing? The implication is perhaps that she has been so shamed by this that her head is still down. She doesn't even know they've left. She is so, so stricken with shame. She is so beat up by this event. She doesn't even look. So Jesus has, hey, where are they? And she said, no one, Lord. Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go home now on sin no more. Now, this is a marvelous story and a great conversation we're going to look at. But let me be uh, straight up with you in front. If, if you have a study Bible or if you have ever read this before or you've ever uh, dealt into this, and I have a time limit on this, I've got to run through it. That's why I've given you some other things. But you may know or you may not know. And it, you know, in teaching, I'm always uh, uh, troubled at times that I give people information they need and then I give other people information that confuses them. <laughs> have you ever heard that? From me. <laughs> this passage, John 8, beginning at verse 2 to, tw- to 11, is not in the earliest manuscripts. This story, when you do what we call textual criticism, which uh, scholars do as they have tried to do their best to find the text and work with it, that this text or this story is not in the most ancient Manuscripts. And you may know that because of that. And, and you say, well, okay, why are you talking about this? Well, I just want to be honest with you, first of all, to let you know that one of the things that as we study the Bible, we don't want to just believe things or do things just because we think they're there. But why is this story here? Why is this story in here? Uh, there are several possibilities here. Let me just suggest a couple of things. And, and I'm not going to go deep into this except two areas. Textual criticism suggests that this story probably was added later. Probably added later. And uh, because of that, there is that uh, section there to say this wasn't in the original oldest manuscripts. And that's interesting when you say that because I don't know if you know this or not about the Bible and trying to, <clears throat> excuse me, have an understanding of what has the most uh, evidence for its presence. The Bible is without peer in the ancient world as far as manuscripts. I don't know if you know that or not. There is nothing in antiquity that even gets close to it. In fact, I'm so excited about the Greens. You know, they're building this Bible museum in New York or Washington, D.C. And they've done a lot of research and a lot of work, and they have some of that. Let me give you an example here. Uh, in, in ancient literature, the, the Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, we have 10 manuscripts for that. And yet, those recordings are considered to be completely reliable. 10 manuscripts. Uh, Livy's Roman history, we have 20. We have 20 manuscripts. Tectus history and, and his annals, uh, I almost said animals, but it's annals. <laughs> yeah, Tectus history and annals. I've been off for a week. I'm just, I'm, vibra- I'm vibrating. I'm ready to teach. There are about 100 manuscripts. What's interesting, Plato's dialogues, there's about 10 All of these ancient documents that have this kind of manuscript evidence are accepted with almost out any any question. So when you come to the Bible, I want to suggest the the reason many people want to reject the Bible is not because they're afraid it's not true. They're afraid that it is true. (laughs) It makes demands on us, right? Do you have any idea? Maybe somebody maybe. Do you have any idea how many manuscripts we have of the of the New Testament? Ten? Okay. Actually, five. Thousand. <laughs> Five thousand. If I had time with that, I could explain to you 
this, I'm not going to take you through textual criticism today, but, but this is a huge indicator of how we know that we have a reliable, the more, man, not like, the more manuscripts and the more harmony that we have suggests that we have a reliable section here of passages that we can rely on. Now, let, let, let's think about that for a second. The, it's staggering. For the Bible, it, there, it, it is without peer in the ancient world. There's nothing in the ancient world that even comes remotely close to it. The number of manuscripts. Okay, the, the second thing. Uh, the dating of the manuscripts. The dating. Uh, I tell some of my guys, it's the only date they're ever going to have, but they, they don't understand that. The, the dating, you know, it is. In the ancient world, there is the regular way, if you will, that when events occur, there is a long period of time before it's written down. Now, if you know that or not. You can study this in Roman history, Persian history. You can study this in Greek history. You can study this in Assyrian history. There is a long period of time between an actual event and being written down. In, in the, the wars of Julius Caesar, some estimations are it's 900 years between the time that this all happened and they wrote it down. 900 years. So there are these huge gaps from something occurring and something happening. Let me, let me tell you about the Bible. The Bible, again, was out, is without peer. There's nothing in the ancient world in which something occurs and it is written down so quickly. The Gospel of Mark is somewhere around 45. The Gospel of Matthew we know is before 70 A.D. because Matthew was written to a Jewish audience and can you imagine if you're trying to say that Jesus is superior to old Judaism if the temple had been destroyed, you wouldn't mention that. <laughs> Right? In 70 AD, the temple was completely destroyed. It would have been mentioned. The book of Hebrews. All these, so all of these books that we have are quickly written. Now, what's the danger? Here's the danger. Eyewitnesses. If you tell a bunch of people that Jesus fed 5,000 people on a hillside, in 20 years, there's still maybe 4,000 of them still alive and could say without any contradiction, that didn't happen. We were there. That's all a bunch of phony baloney. There is no evidence that there was ever any activity or effort to say that these matters were not true. That's just two things. I'm, I'm, so so when, we, when we look at this, we say, it wasn't there. Why is it there? Why is it in here? Why was it included? N.T. Wright and some other guys a lot smarter than I am. Uh, make this observation, and, and I'll just show you here. John even says this in his letter in John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Uh, I just lost my place. Uh, John chapter 20, verse 30, 30. Therefore, many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written that you may believe. See, what, what happened? there's many other things that Jesus did that weren't put in this book. And there's the idea that because this did happen, because it is an actual event, that somebody later, as they were working with the manuscripts, just put it in there. Now watch else. And it may be to harmonize the story. Look at chapter 8, verse 5. Back to 8. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone this woman. What do you say? Where the, where, the, where the question is, look at the end of chapter 8, verse 59. 
How does it end? And they picked up stones to throw at Jesus. That there might have been an attempt to harmonize this, that this event shows how that the Pharisees were more than willing to kill people for almost any reason, and to harmonize it to say, and when Jesus did these kind of things, they wanted to kill Him. Now, I'm not trying to get you nervous about the Bible. I, I have complete confidence because of Scripture. So I, I'm going to ask you if you want to consider this. Look here. I've got some resources for you, I think. Don't I? Here we go. If this is bothersome to you, if you're, if you're concerned about this, these are some scholars that have written extensively about this. And I would suggest that uh, you uh, just uh, take some time. If, you're, if this is of interest to you or troublesome to you, I don't have time to teach you all about textual criticism. Uh, it's, it's a huge sign. I'll just tell you what. The Bible and its manuscripts is not a hocus-pocus throw thing together. It's a science. It was carefully, methodically understood that these are the ways we go with this. So I would recommend these resources. They should be on your handout. Are they? Okay, good, good, good. So, so this kind of reliability. In fact, I had breakfast the other day in, in Colorado Springs with Craig Blomberg. He doesn't know it, but I did. <laughs> we were at Glen Erie, and, and, and he, he's a brilliant scholar. He, he, he comes in and sits down by a table by us, and I said to Becky, that's Craig Blomberg. That's Craig Blomberg. And she goes, okay. <laughs> Listen, man, I had quite a year last week. I missed N.T. Wright, Paul Young, uh, 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 Craig Blomberg, Miroslav Volf. You know, it was a big year. So we're sitting there having breakfast together, sort of, and uh, it, it was just hilarious. I, I'm sitting there. This guy is so smart, he's scary. He walks in with shorts on, kind of a plaid-like shirt with a pocket with seven pencils in it. I'm not kidding you. I'm not kidding you. Walks in, black socks, boat shoes. Scholar. <laughs> you know what? I'm not kidding you. I'm not that smart. I'm kind of loud, but I've often said... I'm, I dress too well to be a scholar. I really do. I dress too well to be a scholar. See? Look at it. I dress way too well to be a scholar. Blomberg has written extensively in this area. He's a professor in Denver. And just incredible. So I, I, I hope, you know, I, I, if thinking people are in this classroom and they have a Bible, they're seeing a variant there, aren't they? This is not in the oldest manuscripts. So, I mean, we, we, let, let's face the reality here. But I'll just say, Bruce Metzger, who is the world's leading scholar on textual criticism, D.A. Carson at Southern Seminary have all made this statement, that they believe that this was not in the original manuscript, and it's okay. But they believe it has every evidence of being an historical event. Not something made up. Something that actually happened. John did not include, but the, but the uh, uh, editors or the, the people that worked with the manuscript saw, knew this and included it harmonizing the stoning. So anyway, we'll do that. Okay. I'm done. Here we go. Now, in this story, I want to suggest in this conversation, there are what I call twin challenges. I'm going to to be so bold as to say this. I think in this story, there are two challenges, these twin challenges, that every follower of Jesus is going to deal with for all of their existence. Now, that's a bold statement, I know, but stay with me. There are two things in here that are going on that every follower of Jesus will find themselves in one or the other. Now, hopefully, we can grow to the point that these become less 
difficult for us, less intrusive. But there are two of them. I still got the, the twin challenges. You know, this year they're trying to make sure that we have a real national championship because they've got the four teams and the NCAA. Some of y'all about aware of that, you know, doing all that. I, I was reading up on that the other day because my team is nowhere close. <laughs> it won't be hard for them to, to decide about Texas. Uh, that uh, that the, the committees are, are, are working together. They've worked with computer programs, and, and they have a twin challenge. They really do. The, the, the selection committee said this in their work, that, that, that they really have a twin challenge here. And, and that twin challenge is this, is they've got to look at teams by their record, who's not lost any games, which are hardly anybody, I don't think, anymore, that, that nobody has not been beaten. So that's the one. Okay, look at the record. But the other one is the strength of the schedule. You know, if you play just, a, you know, the Girl Scouts and, you know, uh, you know like Texas, uh, or <laughs> I'm going to own it this year, okay? I'm going to own it. I'm going to take it. But wait till next year. <laughs> you know, you play some sappy teams and, you, you know, you're undefeated. So the, 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 the committee says, we, we're not only going to look at your record. What's the strength of schedule? That's the twin challenge. In this passage, let me give them to you. I'll, I'll, you can write this out, but we're going to come back and hit every one of them. The twin challenges in my judgment here, the twin challenges found in this passage is the challenge, I'll give you the first one here, the challenge of legalism. I'm not going to give you the second one. I decided that. I can do that. I'm the teacher. The challenge of legalism. Now, what is legalism? Let me talk to you what it isn't. We see in this story these men and Pharisees who find this woman who apparently was in the act of committing adultery, which makes you wonder how did they know where that happened. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, th- th- that, that they catch her and they want to they harm her, they want to do something. Now, let, let's, let me say what legalism is not. Okay, because we get confused about this. Legalism is not the passionate pursuit of God in seeking to please Him. Legalism is not the passionate pursuit of God in in wanting to please Him. Legalism is is not a well-ordered life that practices the means of grace. You know, Bible study, prayer. I'll talk some more about that. Bible study, prayer, Church fellowship, uh, the Lord's Supper, the one I talked to a guy one time, I said, let's have lunch. I want to talk to you about fasting, you know, because that's, that's what we don't like, right? Fasting and solitude. That's not legalism, to have a well-ordered life that practices those means of grace on a regular basis. Legalism is not a life that takes seriously the matter of following Jesus at every point of my life. That's not legalism. To take seriously, to say, I'm going to follow Jesus at every point. What is legalism? Let me, let, me, let me give you a couple of them here. Legalism is where I live to put God into my debt. Think about that for a second. Legalism is where I live to put God into my debt. Let me tell you how you know that's happening. Something bad happens, we say what? Why did this happen to me? I've been going to church. I've been paying my tithe. I've been serving God. What, 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 what is that? God, you owe me. Listen, legalism is a little sneakier than we want to imagine. 
Legalism is when I am working and living in such a way that unconsciously even at times, I am putting God into my debt. He owes me. This can't happen to me. This won't work this way because I am. Legalism is also, say it this way, when faith, and I stole this from John Piper, so I give credit. Next time I say, I always say, and you know, that's how you use resources. Piper said this way, legalism is when faith is not the engine of obedience. Legalism is when faith is not the engine of obedience. Now, I'm not talking about, here's what I mean. I'm going to interpret Piper, which he may not like. When I say I believe in Jesus, then my faith in him says, I don't think I understand this, Jesus. I don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me, but I believe you. So I'm going to do it. Right? I mean, it doesn't make sense to me. I, I don't understand it, but I trust you. See, faith is the engine. It's not just duty. It's, it's, it's not just, well, a good Christian would do that. Now, that's, that's, that's legal. That's duty. That, the idea is that it, it, the engine for obedience is faith that says, look, I don't understand this. I wouldn't do this on my own. I wouldn't make this decision based on my own mind or thought. But because I believe you, Jesus, I'm going to do it. Does that make sense? I'll tell you what, I think Jesus also, and Jesus said this, if you love me, you'll obey me. If you love me, you'll obey me. That legalism is when we obey for other reasons, to, because we're afraid we're going to get hurt, or because good people do it this way. Legalism is when we obey to earn our standing with God. Legalism is when we, we, we do this to earn our standing with God. Here's what's funny. When we get into that mentality, I think that we become like these Pharisees. I wrote it this way. Legalism is when we earn our standing with God and we judge others' standing when we suppose that they have not done what we've done. Do you get that? See, we, we, we earn our way. We, we obey to earn. We do all these things. And then we judge others who don't do what we do. Right? It's legalism. Whenever I'm in judgment, when I'm looking down at other people because you haven't done what I've done, you should obviously do what I do, right? That's that earning. So let me, let me, let me walk us through this as quick as I can here. I think i got time. Legalism values principles over people. Legalism values principles. Here's what, look, at, look what the Pharisees do. Here's a poor woman who's been found in the act of adultery. Now, Jesus doesn't, doesn't say that's okay. But, you know, have you ever thought about something here? Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher, said this one time in a sermon when he said, when we look down on people who've been in sinful behavior or sinful activities, would we ever take the time to ask, why did they get there? He said, had you and I gone through the same things, we might be worse. See, it, does, it never stops to think that. Legalism never stops. You did the wrong thing. All we do is judge people's behavior. What's interesting, as I've noticed, is, is this. You know, we judge others by their behavior. We judge ourselves by our intentions. Don't we? Well, you know, you did that. I'm telling you that. You know, it's not very good. But, you know, I did it because, well, you just, you know, I was under a lot of pressure. We, we, legalism judges people only on the basis of their behavior. So we don't care about people, we care about principles. 
concepts, ideas. You broke the law. That's it. That's all there is to it. Legalism here values principles. It doesn't care about people. Legalism doesn't understand the real struggles and difficulties that people are in. It never takes time to say, maybe if I understood this a little better, maybe I'd understand what you did. Right? When I'm working with students, I'm serious. I, I've learned this over the years. You know, when they're, having, when they're acting a certain way or doing things, I'll say to them, hey, help, what's going on with you? I used to say, what's going on with No, I don't do that anymore. Okay, I'm strong medicine for freshmen, I can tell you that. I'm real strong medicine. I say, what, what, what's going on here? You know, I had a student came late years ago, came late and, and sat down in front of my classroom in shorts. Now, this was back in the Stone Age at Mid-America when you couldn't wear shorts to class. You can now. And he sits down, and I'm a company guy, okay? I mean, I'm a company guy. And I'm thinking, this clown, who does it? Oh, okay, I'm, think, I'm teaching, but I'm thinking, okay, you think I'm stupid or are you stupid? Which is it? I'm getting hot. You just broke a rule. You signed a book. You signed a contract. You came to this school that you'd abide by that. You know, you're no different than anybody else. Anybody? That sound familiar? That's the way I'm wired. So after class, because I've learned this over time, I said, hey, can I speak to you for a second? Yeah. Come up here privately. Because I have a friend who's an attorney. He's on a retainer for me. I said to him, um, I mean, I am loaded for bear on him. Uh, can you tell me why you uh, came to class today late, one, and in shorts, sir? And he goes, oh, Dr. Sanders, I'm so sorry. He said, I'm just so sorry. Said, what, what is the problem? He said, oh, my wife. And I'm thinking, you're married? Because I, I never noticed he had a ring on. I noticed that kind of stuff. You're, he said, my wife is in the hospital. And she's been there for a week and they don't know what's wrong with her. And I've been staying there, sleeping in a chair so that I could be with her while she was in the hospital. And Dr. Sanders, I love your class so much. I know I got up late today, but I thought I'd come anyway. And I said, okay. <laughs> but wear some long pants next time. How stupid would I have been had I just evaluated his behavior? How stupid I would have been to say it's more important that you obey these rules than you stay with your wife and sleep in a chair in a hospital and take care of her. It's a rule. That's what legalists think. They're rules. I'm, I'm sort of wired like that. The legalists here they don't care about this woman. They have no desire to help her. They throw her in the middle of the court, it says here, and say, Moses told us we had to kill her. Notice what it says there. No, Moses commanded us, stone her. We got our, re we got our reasons. We got our, we, we've got our rules here. So we're going to stone her. How about that, Jesus. So let's look at just a second. I'll be this idea here. Here she is. Did, did Moses say that? Well, yeah. You know what? Jesus, though, was a kind of a rambunctious guy. He said this in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, but I say to you. Listen, Jesus took issue at times with the Old Testament. 
He said, here's what you heard. You shall not commit adultery. I say to you, if you look upon a woman with the intent, now calm down. It doesn't mean you see them. It doesn't mean you just notice them. It means it's the intent of your heart, the desire of your heart. That's what you're doing. I say to you, if you do that, you've committed adultery in your heart. Jesus was not willing to go in what we call just a referential understanding of the Old Testament. That's what it says. That's it. Stan, you were going to ask a question. Hmm. Exactly. Which, which again, I would say is, the, is part of the legalism. They're, they're not interested in the truth. They're trying to prove him wrong. They're, they're not inter- is, is there any truth here? He's, he's wrong because we've already decided that. I, I, I think I, I agree with you in principle there that what is at stake here, they're trying to kill him. But why are they trying to kill him? Because they're rules and regulations. He is walking over. They can't abide this idea that he won't stay with the idea of principles over people. That's my judgment. Principles over people. Now, here's an interesting thing. I think it's absolutely correct. That, that here is this idea of, of, of principle over people. Now, this is hard to know where the principle is and where it works with people. I just want to suggest to you as we look at Jesus and His life that we understand that Jesus was willing and wanted to understand what's going on with people. That's what I'm trying to get you to think. I will suggest to you that legalism smothers a person's heart. Legalism gets you to the point that you don't mind killing a person because they've worked against your principle. That's what they're trying to do with Jesus. They're trying to kill. It doesn't bother you. You know, one of the, one of the great examples in, in the Gospels for me is whenever Judas betrays Jesus and they give him 30 pieces of silver. And then Judas is regretful, it says. He goes and he takes the money back to the temple. And he gives it back to them, and they say, oh, we can't do anything with that. That money is used to kill somebody. The fact that we killed somebody isn't important. The fact that this money is messed up is what's important. See, it's principle over people. We can kill you, but we can't use the money. It's this notion, if you will. Now, let me say something to some people that are in here, like me, which is scary. There is a piece of this, as I was working through it, that, that concerns me. Uh, I don't know if you have any background. Well, I just, there's a book in here. Let me just say this. There are certain people temporalized. I'm what they call an ENTP, which who cares what that means. But, but I'm a person that tends to move toward principles instead of people. That's how, just how I'm wired. It's called the, the T quadrant in the Myers-Briggs score. There's a book there I've given you that you can look at called Invitation to a Journey that'll help you. What I'm fascinated with sometimes is that we don't ever use our own spiritual, our own temperament to deal with our, with our spiritual formation. I'm the, I'm the rule guy. I'm the principle guy because I want to be fair. I want to suggest if you're a T, if you have a T, you may not know if you have this or not. But it, I would say it this way. If you, if you struggle to make decisions for people because you want to keep the rule or keep the principle, you're probably a T. And you're going to struggle with this. And I just want to suggest to you here again, is this is why I gave that resource here. This is an incredible two resources. One is an invitation to a journey by M. Robert Mulholland that will help you understand how your temperament may be working for you or against you in your spiritual formation. It's a great book. And the other one is Accidental Pharisee. I think if any of us become Pharisees, we don't do it on purpose. We just get enculturated in the church 
And we become that because we got all these rules we're trying to keep. Okay? Let me show you one other thing here real quick. I'm hurrying, sort of. Second is legalism is selective in its enforcement. Legalism is selective in its enforcement. I mean, this is an age-old, I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but hey, hey, here's the question. If she was caught in the act of adultery, how many should be here? See, legalists are selective. See, they got rules for you and me that don't apply to them. They got rules that everybody else ought to keep. But it just says right here, he was, he was caught in the very act, and, and Jesus, you know, you know, there's no guy. I, I'm fascinated. I'll just give you a little indication here. that I think the New Testament is pretty clear that, that, that God is fair and, and consistent with us, but legalism, when we get it, we can talk about the law all day and not love our neighbor. Now let me tell you, this is not easy. Jesus gave us two things to say that I'm, t- I'm still working with. I don't care what you think about people. If they're your enemy, you still have to love them. That's what Jesus said. Not what Cliff said. And you have to love your neighbor. Both of those are lifelong journeys. Now, we have to understand what does it mean to love people. I understand that. But let me tell you how selective this is. Uh, I teach Romans every semester. And every semester we go through Romans 1 and there's all that crazy sin in there, right? Boy, students love to get on that. They love to talk about that, but I keep them moving. I say, well, let's look, I'm just going to read you. Let's look at some of the other sins that Paul lists here. You know, Dan Reineke's in Philippi today, but Dan always makes this statement. He said, in Romans 1, there are no misdemeanors and felonies. They're all felonies. But we like to talk about sin that we don't do. That's what the Pharisees are like. They, they, you know, they're, they're selected. They're not going to get this other guy. He's probably one of their buddies. He may be a Pharisee. <laughs> Look what Paul talks about in that same section where there's all these listing of sexual sin like that. Then he goes on, greed, envy, strife, somebody that just likes to stir things up. How about this? Gossip. Can you give you a definition of that? Gossip is when you and I talk about someone with whom we have neither, we're not part of the problem or the solution. When we talk about other people and we're not part of the problem, and we're not part of the solution. We're gossiping. Arrogant. Boastful. I really lay down on this one with the students. Disobedient to parents. <laughs> That's what it says. That's in that list. So legalism gets selective. I've got to hurry. Oh my goodness. The challenge of grace. Let me say to you. You're going to struggle. I'm going to struggle all our life with either legalism or grace. Grace. There is an interesting statement here when Jesus is down. I'll just say this. Here's how grace operates. Grace connects before it corrects. What did Jesus do when they brought her to Him? Knelt down. Started writing in the dirt. My assumption here, again, is, can you imagine her being surrounded by all these guys in these black coats and hats and all that kind of stuff? And she's in the middle... And what did Jesus do? He went to the ground where she was. He's writing in the dirt. Jesus is going to connect with her first. He's going to be down there. Now, there's all kinds of questions about, you know, what was he writing? Who knows? But, but, but Jesus is, is connecting with her here. Jesus is that. Now, Jesus is willing to pardon her. Notice here. See the word pardon? 
Richard Rohr made this statement. I'm still working on it. Rohr made this statement. He said this. God's willingness to forgive you. Listen now. God's willingness to forgive you means He places higher value on you than rules. Just digest that a little bit. God's willingness to forgive you, to pardon you, that's what He's going to do with this woman, is His determination that you are more important than rules. Legalists don't get that. They don't understand that. It's the rule that's got to be upheld. We've got to be fair. We've got to be just across the board. But see, God values you more than even His own rules. That's staggering to me. That Jesus is willing to connect with her. Willing to give her what she needs at that moment of presence. Of just, I'm down here with you. The Son of God. I'm down here where you are. We're at eye level now. You're surrounded by this pack of wolves, if you will. See, grace wants to pardon. Grace connects before it corrects. Before it decides, I'm going to straighten you out here. I'm going to give you some information. And Jesus is going to do that. Other thing here. Man, I... Look here. Grace gives power to live. Let me, let me say it this way. I've said it a couple times, but I'm going to keep coming at it. Notice here the two words at the ends of these little statements. The church in America probably has the idea of grace as pardon pretty well understood. What we don't have is understanding grace as power. This is a long tradition in the history of the church. You see, if you don't understand grace as power for living, then the only thing left for you is try harder. How's that working for you? <laughs> How is that working? If grace is... A, I wrote a book this year. We're trying to get it published in, or with, with our school where I wrote about some Westland theology and we named this book this because I believe this. The Optimism of Grace. Do you have a belief that God's grace is great enough not only to forgive you, but transform you? Do you believe through the power of the Holy Spirit that God's grace is so available and powerful? That God loves you so much He'll pardon you? He will come in and invade your life through the power and presence of His Spirit that He will transform you. That's the promise of Ezekiel 36. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a new spirit. And this is the part of grace that we don't remember. We don't remember that God's grace is for power. Listen to me again. The, the only answer is this, the, these two issues, these twin challenges. I'm going, to give you a new, I'm going to give you a new word today. You're going to struggle with legalism, and the answer to that is grace. Or you'll struggle with antinomianism. That's a big long word. A-N-T-I. N-O-M-I-N-I-S-M. A-N-T-I-N-O-M-I-N-I-S-M. Antinomianism is this. Well, I'm under grace, man. I can do this. I know it's wrong, but I shouldn't do it. God will forgive me. God, God will forgive me. Right? I can do this. It's called antinomianism. It, it, it's, it's Romans 6 where Paul says, What shall we say? Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? No. Is that what we do? Grace then gives us a get-out-of-jail card free? Or is it this idea? Because look what Jesus says to her. Now, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Is He just being goofy with her? Is He just trying to add more grief to the issue? 
Or is he saying something here that grace has the power to change us? I tell you what, I'm going to stop here. I'm going to come back next week. I'm going to finish more of it. Let me, let, me, let me tell you why this is so important. Listen, I don't believe that you live the Christian life in your own effort. But I believe grace will guard you from legalism. And by God's grace, grace will guard you from antinomianism. Where we think we can do anything we want to and live any way we want to, right? We hear people talk like this all the time. In the 30s, there's a great theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was actually killed by the Nazis. If you've read any of his work, one of, one of Bonhoeffer's great contributions is his understanding of cheap grace. Listen to this. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. You know, when we say, you know, I know it's wrong, I shouldn't do it, but God will forgive me. Who's doing the bestowing here? I am. I'm putting on myself. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is preaching of forgiveness without repentance. Cheap grace is baptism without church discipline. Cheap grace is communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Cheap grace is grace without the cross. That Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you're going to pick up your cross and follow me. I, I just, I'm, I want to appeal to you in this area. I, I'm going to come back to some more on this. I've been in the mission for 37 years. I'm 44. And <laughs> I have, I've been in the ministry for 37 years. And over the last several years, this understanding of grace has revolutionized my understanding of how to live the Christian life. For some people in here, legalism is the battle you fight all the time. The answer is grace as pardon. For some of us, God's grace, we think, is a get-out-of-jail card free. We can kind of do what we want to do. And your struggle is with antinomianism. And the answer is grace as power. You're going to locate yourself somewhere. This has been the history of people of God. And you can read this throughout the Scriptures. I'm going to come back next week. We're going to do some more stuff. Let's pray real quick. Lord Jesus, uh, there's a lot of stuff here. And I pray that in this story, that you'd help us to hear what Jesus said to the woman. I forgive you. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. That we could be people who would be guarded from the struggles of legalism by grace as pardon. And we could be people who would be guarded from the scourge of antinomianism because we understand grace as power. We leave this day to day convinced that the answer to our lives is not effort and trying and working and going and doing, but it is to experience the full measure of your grace as pardon and power. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to finish this up somewhere. I got more stuff. So, what else is new?